All right, glad to see all of you again today, as I've told you before, glad to have your fellowship together, and uh, just uh, grateful for what the Lord is, uh, for what the Lord is doing in so many of your lives. I mentioned to our Bible study crowd earlier today that Ron Hamilton, one of our favorite hymn writers, one of our favorite songwriters who wrote uh, so many of the hymns in our our hymn book, uh, went to be with the Lord this last week, I believe on Wednesday. He'd been uh, uh, battling, he'd been on a very long, grueling battle against Alzheimer's for about the last eight years, and uh, just uh, the Lord uh, took him home to heaven last Wednesday, so we're kind of planning next Sunday to have a, a, a Ron Hamilton Sunday, and everything that we're going to sing is going to be a Ron Hamilton song. You'll recognize him. We sing a bunch of his stuff, and uh, that's great. What a wonderful legacy he's uh, left behind for us. Well, please turn this morning in your Bible to uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. First chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Been working our way through this Gospel a few verses at a time, looking at the historical story of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as told by Mark, the, the spiritual son of the Apostle Peter, as well as a ministry assistant to the Apostle Paul. You may remember from a few weeks ago that one of the first meeting, uh, one of the first meeting places in Jerusalem for the first followers of Jesus was in a home that belonged to Mark's mother. Uh, so Mark was connected to all of the happenings in the early church from the very beginning. And based on the New Testament record of where Mark was and how he is mentioned, uh, Mark would have been well acquainted. Uh, with the apostles who were leading the Jerusalem church. He knew the apostle Paul. He knew Barnabas, who was actually his cousin, Mark's cousin. He knew Silas. He knew Timothy. And, of course, Peter called him his son in the faith. So we can be sure that Mark gathered a, a great deal of this information that we are reading from Peter, as well as hearing things from the other apostles. And then the Holy Spirit of God directed him and guided him as he wrote down these things for us to read and study, and by God's grace to benefit from. If you've been with us for some of these in past weeks, remember that Mark starts, starts right out with a very powerful, straightforward declaration the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then with rapid-fire evidence, he, he lays out the proof that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The Old Testament had promised a forerunner who would come and would announce the arrival of the Messiah. Mark introduces us to that forerunner, John the Baptist. He quotes John the Baptist in verse 7 who said, After me one is coming, who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so Mark first gives us, or Mark gives us the first testimony of who the Lord Jesus Christ is from his forerunner, John the Baptist, who was the last Old Testament prophet. Then Mark takes us to the baptism of Jesus by John in the Jordan. And we see another testimony regarding the identity of Jesus. As the heavens open and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus and the voice of God the Father comes out of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit and God the Father both attest to the identity of Jesus. 
Then the Lord Jesus goes into the wilderness and defeats the devil and all of his temptations. And as Satan tries to taunt Jesus into giving up his humanity, we believe, so uh, that he cannot be the perfect God-man and thus cannot be the perfect sacrifice for sin, Jesus defeats him and drives him away. Then the Lord Jesus Christ very openly displays his power, we saw last week, over the spirit world in the synagogue in Capernaum, when he commands demon spirits and they have to obey him. And the demons even give testimony to who Jesus is. As that demon cried out, I know who you are, O Holy One of God. So Mark, in his rapid-fire writing style, has already revealed testimony about the identity of Jesus from a prophet, from the Holy Spirit, from God the Father, from Satan, from Christ himself, from a demon spirit, who have all affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Redeemer, the Son of God. Now that these claims have been made, of course, can Jesus live up to them? Can, can he sustain what's been happening? Is it just a fluke, as they say, or can he repeat what he's been doing? After one Sabbath morning in a synagogue, Jesus is now becoming famous. Can he keep it up? Which brings us to verse 29. And in verses 29 to 39, Mark records a day in the life of Jesus. Actually, verses 29 to 34 happen the same day as the synagogue demon event. And then verses 35 to 39 kind of record the next few weeks, but that's where we'll pick up Mark's story. So I know you've got your place there in Mark chapter 1 and verse 29. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, this is right after the what we just read about last week, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and all who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. We've said in past weeks, if Jesus is going to be the Savior of the world, he has to be able to rescue souls from sin, and he has to be able to rescue souls from Satan, from Satan's dominion. If he is going to raise us up with resurrection bodies so that we never die, then he has to prove that he can overcome the effects of the curse of sin. He has to have power over the spiritual world, and he has to have power over the spiritual and physical effects of the curse of sin. I'm sure you know that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, in, in Genesis 3, that the curse of sin was passed down to every descendant of Adam. 
Sorry, fellows, but the curse of sin is passed down through the Father, as you know. Adam willfully rebelled against God, and God held him responsible. So every person with a human father, which you know means everyone but Jesus, is carrying the effects of the curse of sin. Romans chapter 5 very clearly expresses that fact. So the Savior of the world has to have the power to rescue us from the effects of the curse, both physical and spiritual. He has to be able to prove it. And so as we read the gospel record of the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see him doing exactly that, performing physical healing and commanding the demon spirits. And right after they leave the synagogue in Capernaum, they go to the house of Peter and Andrew and James and John tag along. The four of them are following Jesus now, as we read in some previous verses. They have left their commercial fishing business. They are full-time followers now of the rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. In the Gospel of John, uh, John says that Peter and Andrew were originally from Bethsaida, not too far away from Capernaum. But now they have apparently moved to this better business location, we, we presume, to generate more income in the commercial fishing business. Note that, or not necessarily that the, that the fishing was any better, that because Bethsaida was not that far away, and the Sea of Galilee is only 13, 14 miles north-south and 7 or 8 miles east-west, so, so they could easily fish the same parts of the lake, whether they were starting from Bethsaida or Capernaum, but the selling, I think, was probably better in Capernaum. There were two, as I told you, I think a couple of weeks ago, two caravan trade routes that intersected in Capernaum, resulting in a lot more business traffic. And another thing to note is that when, he, when Mark talks about this, that Simon, that Jesus called Peter, and his brother Andrew, they are living in the same house together with their families. So it would have been a decent-sized house, indicating Peter and Andrew were not just a couple of guys with a bass boat and a couple of rods and reels trying to catch enough to, 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 to sell. They, they were commercial fishermen, and the Bible always speaks of their nets, plural, and boats, plural, and James and John were in business with their father, and according to the passage here we read a few weeks ago, they actually had employees. So you had Dad, Zebedee, and James and John, and some employees, and Peter and Andrew in their nets, plural. So these were big-time commercial fishermen. Fish were a stable part of the Middle Eastern diet. It was a profitable business. I'm sure they were doing quite well. But you can't help but wonder if the reason why they brought Jesus home for dinner was because Peter's mother-in-law was sick. They had seen Jesus, they'd seen his demonstrations of power in the synagogue. They're probably thinking Jesus could do something for Peter's mother-in-law. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this issue, but you're probably well aware that there are some church traditions that teach that Peter was unmarried. And that teaching influences a number of their practices and their policies. But here, of course, we see that Peter's wife's mother was sick, so you, you can't possibly have a mother-in-law without a wife. And so Peter, Peter had a wife. He, he was married. The Apostle Paul, in writing about a particular topic in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he mentions Peter's wife, and he mentions Peter's wife traveling with him on his ministry trips. 
So Peter was obviously married, and there is no biblical record of this fact, but there are some of the early church writings that say that as Peter's wife traveled with him in his preaching times, was with him as when he was pastoring and preaching even in Rome, then that Peter's wife was crucified at the same time that Peter was crucified. And, the, and some of the early church writers record Peter's encouraging words to his wife as they were leading them away uh, to be crucified. Other writings mention Peter's children. So it appears that Peter was a married man with a family. But at any rate, when they got to the house, they told Jesus about her immediately. She was sick with a fever, and she was sick enough to be lying down. Dr. Luke, in his gospel, he calls it a high fever. Actually, it's interesting that some words have come right into English from, 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 from Greek. One of them is the word mega. We talk about mega this and mega that. That's, that's basically a Greek word. You're speaking Greek and you didn't know it. It just means big, huge, high. So, so Dr. Luke, when, when you look at his writing, his record of this, he says that Peter's mother had a mega fever. In other words, it was, it was high enough that it was probably potentially life-threatening. And so they come and they, they ask Jesus if he can heal her. No aspirin, no ibuprofen. Nothing like that available in those days. And so if you had a fever, they just put cool cloths on you and hope it went away. A lot of people died from those things. So the Lord Jesus comes in. He takes Peter's uh, mother-in-law by the hand, and she is instantly healed. You know, over the years, people have asked me, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a little while now, but I've been asked many, many times, do you believe in divine healing? That is, do you believe that God can heal people? My response is, absolutely yes. God can heal. God does heal. One of my pastor mentors, I've told you this before, from my youth used to say, God heals every sickness and disease except the last one. And what he meant was, the only reason any of us are alive here today is because God has allowed us to survive all of our ailments. And when God is ready for us to leave this life, then that last sickness, he, he won't heal that one. If, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, God will use that last sickness or disease to take us home to heaven. But up until that time, God heals every disease and sickness except the last one, and sometimes He does it in astounding ways. But usually when someone asks me that question, it's, it's generally in the context of some sort of faith healing story of some kind. Uh, so I have responded, well, I believe in divine healing, but I do not believe in divine healers. A person who travels the country or the world supposedly healing people by means of a gift from God. And you say, well, why, why don't you believe in divine healers? Well, I, there's one, one very simple reason. Because nobody, I mean nobody, nobody, nobody does it like Jesus and the apostles. If they actually had the gift of healing, they would do it like Jesus and the apostles. But nobody does it like Jesus and the apostles. 
And I want to give you briefly just six facts about New Testament healing by Jesus and the apostles. You may be familiar enough with the New Testament to affirm this. You may need to read a little bit more. But if you study this topic through the New Testament, I am sure you will very clearly see this. Six very simple principles about Jesus and the apostles and their healing ministry. Number one, Jesus healed with a word or a touch, just like he did here. Simple, no grandiose scenes, no offering plates, no grandstanding, just a simple word or a touch. He comes into Peter's mother-in-law, he takes her by the hand. Bang, she's healed. That's the way Jesus always healed. Just, just a spoken word, you're healed. Or a touch. That's the way, that's the, way the apostles healed. With a spoken word or a touch. <laughs> Number two, Jesus healed instantly. No wait time. No, uh, well, you know, go home and rest up and see how you, how you feel tomorrow because I think you're healed. I mean, it was, it was instant healing. And we see that in this passage too. He takes Peter's mother-in-law by the hand. Immediately the fever leaves her and it says she served them. In other words, she doesn't say, Whew, boy, I'm glad I finally quit sweating. This, uh, this, uh, the fever broke. Whew, I, I guess I better rest here for a while. No, she got up and started cooking dinner. Just like that. She was healed instantly. Number three. Jesus healed totally or completely. There was no recovery time. There was no leftover ailment to deal with. No, no statement of, well, I think you're fixed, but in a few weeks we'll know for sure. Peter's mother-in-law gets up from this mega fever and starts preparing and serving supper instantly back to normal. Totally healed. No leftover of anything from the fever. So Jesus healed with a word or a touch. He healed instantly. He healed totally healed or completely. Number four, and this is a very crucial one. Jesus and the apostles always had a 100% success rate. Always. Anybody that Jesus touched could never go out and say, Well, you know, we tried, but it just, it just didn't work quite right. And I don't know, I guess I didn't have enough faith or... You know, or I didn't have a whatever. No. They always had a 100% success rate. You see the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts coming to the temple and the lame man's there and, 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 and is asking for alms. You know, a, a gift. And Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. Which means he instantly is not a modern faith healer. <laughs> yeah. Silver and gold I have none. I don't have any $20 million, airplane, $20 million airplanes or $50 million estates in Texas somewhere. Silver and gold I have none. But he said, I have something else I'll give you. He says, rise up and walk. And the guy sits there and looks at him. Peter reaches down. You can read it in the text there in Acts. He reaches down, takes him by the hand, pulls him to his feet. That guy didn't have any faith. He didn't even know what was happening. Peter starts to heal him. He doesn't even know what's going on. Peter grabs him by the hand and pulls him, and then all of a sudden the guy stands up and he realizes his legs work. Jesus and the apostles had a 100% success rate. It never, ever, ever failed. Number five, Jesus healed organic disease. Not just back pain and headaches and sore muscles and upset stomachs, which is what a lot of these guys line up in the healing meetings for. Jesus straightened out crooked arms. 
He straightened out the, the, the crippled legs of people. He restored shriveled hands and opened blind eyes. He stopped internal bleeding that a woman had been battling for 12 years. He, he healed organic disease. He healed things that you could visibly see. And then number six, he raised the dead. I don't see anybody doing that today. See, if these guys who are going around claiming to be healers today, if they really had the gift of healing, they should do what Jesus did here in Mark chapter 1. They should go, drive down to Great Falls, go to, go to Benefice, and walk up and down the halls, touch every person, and empty the place. And it would always work 100% of the time. But oh no, that's not the way it works. And I won't get off on a long, long tangent with all that. But hey, nobody today does it like Jesus and the apostles. Nobody. And Jesus and the apostles did not become multi-millionaires from their ministries. As I said, no $20 million private jets, no $30 million estates on the oceanfront, no five-star hotels with room service while you travel the world raising money from the poor. And again, I say I won't, I could get off on a long tangent on that. But, but you get the picture. Nobody today does it like Jesus and the apostles. So yes, I believe in divine healing. Pray, pray, pray. Ask God for His mercy. Ask God for His grace. Ask God for healing. Have some, if you need, if you need to, if you, you feel like you need to be healed from something, or you have some medical issue, I've prayed with people in hospitals over and over and over again, that if God would be merciful to them, that He would heal them and raise them up. Nothing wrong with that. We should be doing that. But please, don't send money to a charlatan who promises you something that he can't deliver. And trust God to do His will. He may heal, He may not heal. It is not always God's will to fix every human ailment that we have. There is a divine purpose for suffering. There's a divine purpose for human frailties. But that's another complete sermon. But rest assured, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be totally healed one day. Because you're going to have a new body that will never get sick, that will never die, and you will live in that body in a new heaven and a new earth, in the presence of God and His glory for all of eternity, and that is the ultimate healing. You may remember again, we'll refer back to Adam and Eve for just a moment, when Adam and Eve sinned, and God drove them out of the Garden of Eden, and He placed angels to guard the entrance with flaming swords so that they could not come back into the garden and eat from the tree of life and live forever. That was, that was grace. You see, God never intended for us to live forever in this sin-cursed world with a sin-cursed body. What a horrible destiny that would be. Stuck forever in your sin-cursed body. That would be terrible. Who would want that? I don't want to be stuck forever in my sin-cursed body. I want to leave this one behind and go to heaven and get a new one. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God will heal every sickness and disease except the last one. Then He'll take us home to heaven where there's no sorrow, no sickness, no death. That will be our ultimate healing. All right, let's finish our text. We see Jesus doing three things here. 
in these these verses that we read. He, he's doing three things. He is he is proving, he is praying, and he is preaching. Jesus has been proving, praying, and preaching. He has been proving who he is. Then he escapes the crowds and he goes away to a quiet private place to pray. He sleeps. Remember, he is the God-man, fully divine, fully human, so he gets tired. He sleeps, but he gets up before daylight, before everybody else, and he goes out into the countryside to play, to pray. He says he, he goes, he went out and departed to a solitary place. That word, actually, that Greek word is the same word that's been used four times before in, 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 in Mark 1. It means the wilderness. He didn't just go to the backyard. He walked away out of town, out into the countryside. And he's praying. And he's so far out of Capernaum, we don't know how far, but he's so far out, his disciples have to come looking for him. Like I say, he's not just in the backyard or around the corner or out at the edge of town. He's out in some secluded place where he's praying. Jesus is praying because he is dependent on the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Mark's gospel records three times that Jesus went to a secluded place to pray. One here in chapter 1, he says it again in chapter 6, there's another story in chapter 14, where Jesus left the crowds, left the disciples, went off by himself to a secluded place, and he prayed. But as you read through the gospels, he's praying all the time, not just these times, these secluded places. He prayed before he called the twelve apostles. He prayed before he performed miracles. He prayed when he taught the disciples to pray. He prayed before he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He prayed on the last night with his disciples in the upper room. He prayed in Gethsemane. He prayed while he was hanging on the cross. And you could probably find a few more times that the Gospels record him praying. He prays because he has voluntarily placed himself under the authority of the Father. He is totally submissive to the will and the plan of God the Father. He is communing with the Father. So in his humanity, he can know what the Father wants him to do. I want you to look, if you would, John chapter 5. Hold your finger here. We'll be back to Mark. Look at John chapter 5 for just a moment. Remember, Jesus is fully God, 100% God, but he's also fully man, 100% man. And when he voluntarily took on the limitations of a human body and became, we call it the incarnation, he took on flesh, he took on the limitations of a human body to live here as a righteous man and die for unrighteous men. And so Jesus, in his humanity, he, he is praying to God the Father to find out what God would have him to do. Look at John chapter 5, and we're going to read verse, well, let's look at verse 16. John five sixteen. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He had just healed someone. But Jesus answered them, look at this, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. 
Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood what Jesus was saying. Don't let anybody ever tell you, and I've heard people write, I've heard people say, well, that's just, you know, you Christians, you just, you just kind of turn Jesus into a God. Jesus never said he was God. I'm thinking, these guys never read the Gospels? I mean, read the Gospels! When, when Jesus says, my father has been working to now, and I've been working, the Jews knew exactly what he meant. They wanted to kill him. They said, you're, you're claiming to be God. Well, yeah, he was God. And he claimed it all the time. But notice this very interesting statement, verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he, the Father, does, the Son does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. What's going on there? How does the Father show the Son what he's doing? I believe he shows him through prayer. That's why we see Jesus praying all of the time in his humanity. He is connecting with the will of God the Father and putting, him un, putting himself under his authority. So his disciples find him. Everybody's looking for you, they say. Jesus says, okay, let's go to the next town. Go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 38. He said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus said, let's go to the next town because I have to preach there. This is why I came. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus' healing ministry was just a sideline benefit of the grace of God to demonstrate his overwhelming power over everything. He was sovereign over nature. He was sovereign over all forms of human suffering. He was sovereign over the spirit world. He was sovereign over the devil himself. He was sovereign uh, over, over everything, and he proved it, and he demonstrated who he was by doing all these miraculous things. But his priority was not the healing ministry. His priority, he says, I came to preach the gospel. I got to preach there also for this purpose I have come forth. That was it. That was what it was all about. His priority was to preach. By the way, the word preach simply means to proclaim. Preach doesn't mean you yell. You might yell, but it doesn't mean you yell. It means to proclaim. To teach means to instruct. Preach means to proclaim. Jesus did both, so do we. But preaching generally implies that you are announcing something. You are proclaiming something. You are calling people to respond to something. As Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. He said in another passage, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here he says, I have come to preach. This is so important because, because and, and this is another fascinating thing for us to think about in this modern world, there is no salvation in miracles. Don't forget that. There is no salvation in miracles. Salvation comes from believing the gospel message. Romans 10, 13 to 15, you know the passages. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? 
How shall they believe on him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they are sent? Then a couple of verses later, verse 17 of John 10, sorry, of, of Romans 10. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus came to preach. For months, he went all over Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, proving his identity, calling people to repent. He's proving, he's praying, he's preaching. You know, I've heard some people say, you know, if I could, if I could just see a miracle, then I might believe. No, they won't. Don't let them, don't let them, don't let them tell you that. That, that they're so totally biblically untrue. There is, there is no salvation in miracles. And miracles don't lead anyone to true faith. They may arrest their attention. They may make them kind of astonished and amazed. They may make them curious. But the salvation is not in the miracles. And miracles don't lead anybody to true faith. And we see it right here. Jesus said, bring them all to me so I can heal them all. Maybe they'll be saved then. Oh, no. He says, I have to preach. All this other stuff is just the sideline. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. We won't take the time to read it today. But the, the, the rich man wants Abraham. Remember the rich man dies, he's in hell. Lazarus, this poor beggar, was at his table. He ate the crumbs that fell off the rich man's table. But, but Lazarus was a righteous man. He knew, he knew Christ. He knew the Lord. They go, they go to Hades, this place where you've, all the departed dead are, and those who did not know the Lord, they're over here suffering. Those who do know the Lord, they are, they are here with Abraham, comforted. And the rich man looks across, and he sees Abraham and Lazarus. And he says, Abraham, send Lazarus over here to, with a little dab of water to put some water on my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham says to him, you know, we can't do that. There's this huge gulf between us and you. We can't go to you. You can't come to us. And he said, well, then please, please send somebody back to my brothers to tell them not to come to this place. You know, put your faith in God. Don't come to this place. And Abraham says, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've got the Old Testament scripture. It's always there then. And the rich man says, but they won't believe that. But if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. You know what Abraham says? The father of faith, the Bible calls Abraham. Abraham says, oh no, they won't. If they won't believe the word of God, they won't believe the miracles. Why do we preach? Why do we witness? Why do we focus on the scripture? Because faith comes by hearing the word of God. You hear the scripture and you believe it. That is the way that people truly come to Christ. That is the only thing that brings about true salvation. We hear the word of God, we believe it. You may be very interested in the message of Jesus. You may be quite amazed at the teaching of the Scripture. But have you truly believed the Word? 
just faith in, in religion? Is your faith in your church? Is it your faith in the background? Is it faith in an experience? Faith in a miracle you saw? Faith in a miracle you think you, you, think you experienced? Uh, people tell me that sometimes. Oh, pastor, I such and such happened, and this was great, and my, it was God. And after that, I've always believed. Well, no, they really did put their faith in Christ. They probably believed God was there. But they really put their faith in Christ? No, they, they have absolutely no idea what faith in Christ is all about. But they had an experience with a miracle, and, and they think they know Christ. No. Salvation doesn't come from miracles. It comes from believing what the Word of God says. That's why Jesus said, i got to go preach. i got to go proclaim. i got to go from town to town and go to all these synagogues, and i got to preach. Yeah, I'll do some healings along the way. But that's not what's going to bring people into the kingdom. What brings people into the kingdom is when they believe what the Word of God says. They put their faith in Jesus Christ because of what He preached. I know most of you probably have already done that. But I just ask you, have you truly believed the Word? The Word of God? Have you truly believed the Word of God? You just have a lot of facts and information about the, about the Lord. Maybe you do. Maybe you got some religious background. Maybe you got some respect for God. Oh, oh, that's great. It's, it's all good. But if you want to truly know Christ as Savior, you've got to put your faith in what the Word of God said about Him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Have you truly believed the Word? Let's pray. We know, Lord, that the devil has done an absolutely fantastic job of deceiving people. He's a brilliant deceiver, and he always has been. And so many folks out there, they've had a religious experience. They've got some facts, some information, some knowledge, and they just sort of think that they're connected to God somehow. But Lord, I pray that you will help us to examine our own hearts, help us to guide our friends who are searching and seeking and wondering to believe what the Word of God says about Jesus Christ and to obey the commands that the Word of God tells us to obey regarding Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, miracles don't save anybody. You said so yourself. You came to preach. That's the only way. Proclaim the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray for many of our loved ones. We have, we have so many folks that we know, so many folks that we love, who are in desperate need of true faith in Jesus. Pray that the Spirit of God would open their hearts. They would come under conviction of sin. They would recognize their need of Christ. And that they would bow the knee before the Lord. Admit that they're a sinner. Admit that they need you. And that they would ask for forgiveness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.